Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, well, let's look at our parables here. Let's look at some of the parables of Christ. Um, one of the unique things about Luke in, in the Perean ministry time frame, he records a lot of unique parables of Christ. In fact, Luke has a significant number of parables unique only to him. And these are just some of them, some of the parables. We have uh, the parable of the rich fool. When somebody asked Christ in Luke 12, 13, uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, and what did Christ tell him? Who made me have a judge over you? What was this guy worried about? His money. And so Christ gives the parable of the rich young fool. Now, let's ask a question before we go on here further. What is a parable? It's a story. Right. Um, When we do hermeneutics, I talk about parables and how to interpret parables. I'll give you the 20,000 foot perspective here. A parable is meant to teach a singular truth. The parable is not meant to teach all kinds of truths. Okay? Um, some have said a parable is like an extended simile. What's a simile? Like her ass. Like so a parable is an extended simile. And a parable teaches a main singular truth by the use of a story. It's not meant to teach all kinds of truth. If you try to make a parable teach all kinds of stuff, you can really wind up with some weird things. Right. It teaches mainly a singular truth. And it uses a, a story that would be known commonly to the people of that time. Now, a parable had a twofold purpose in Christ's ministry. On one hand, it was to conceal truth. And you say, well, how was it to conceal truth? Well, if the parable was not explained, what did it do? He didn't understand it. But if it's explained, it reveals truth. truth. Because one asked him, remember in Matthew 13, why are you teaching them in parables? And he says, because having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not. They don't want to understand, so I'm going to teach truth, but I'm going to make it in such a way that they can't understand it. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, wait a minute. What What did the people do? They rejected Christ. They're rejecting his teaching. You understand God is not obligated to teach you anything? God's not obligated to reveal truth to you, especially if you don't want to hear it. And so that's what a parable is. So usually you can find out the purpose of a parable by looking at what? Who you're talking to. And the context, right? So what's the context of this parable? Yeah, what's the context? Right, it was, it was this guy wanted his brother to split the inheritance with him. And evidently the brother was not giving him his what he considered the fair share of his portion. And this guy's appealing to Christ to do that. And Christ said, you know, man, who made me a judge over you? And then he gives the parable. And what's the parable of the rich young Full. Well, this guy had a lot of wealth and he built these barns and 
He said, I don't have any room to put all my stuff. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to take it easy. And what was God's plan? Kill him that night. Yeah, tonight your soul will be required. Then who gets all your stuff? What, so, what's the point of the parable? Don't hoard all the stuff. Don't be greedy. Well, the Bible says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Yeah. You have to prioritize. The point of the parable is, don't set your affections on things down here. I mean, don't think that because you have money, you don't need God. God has a way of overriding all of your priorities. Don't set your affections on things down here. You can't take it with you. And you don't know whether you're going to die tonight or not, right? I mean, there's one thing common about the prince and the pauper. They both die. There's a death coming to all. And what you see here, it's the uncertainty of life, the foolishness of making plans without God. When you try to make a plan, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and God says, well, how do you know that you're going to have the time to do that? Now, by the way, is it wrong to make plans? No. No, but you make plans in light of what? Yeah. And, and with the realization, God, you know, I'm going to do the best to make my plans, but you're free to preempt them. You seek first the kingdom, then yeah. everything else adds to you. Right. But we have this great parable of the... Rich and rural. and that says in verse 29, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You're a fool if you lay up treasure for yourself and you're not rich towards God. You're a fool. So, when you got these boys on TBN that talk about laying up for yourself's treasure down here, what are they? They're fools. They're the devil. They're fools. It's not what it's all about. So your best life here, that's a, don't buy that book either, huh? Well, for the unbeliever, their best life is here. <laughs> okay. Then we have the parable of the watchful servants in Luke 12, 35-41. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch, he finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have had his, left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not expect. Oh, what's the point of this one? That he come any time. Right. Now somebody says, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't teach that Christ can come at any time. Okay, where are they reading? I don't know. What's Christ's point here? That he come any time. Right. don't have no certain So if he can come at any time, what do you need to do? Be ready at all times. Yes. And this was a common thing in those days. Uh, the master is going out for a wedding feast. And he's going to come home. But you don't know when he's going to come home. So as a servant, what do you need to be ready for? Yeah. He might come at the first watch, second watch, third watch. You need to be ready. 
Because what's going to happen is if you're not ready, he's going to come at a time when you're not expecting it. So you need to be ready. It's unexpected. Any idea here? This is the thing here. The servants, do they know that the master's coming? No. I mean, they know, yeah, but they don't know when. Yeah, they know he's coming. They're just not on the ball. And I think that's, you know, I, I keep thinking that's going to take a lot of us when Christ comes again, you know. We, well, yeah, we know he's coming, but then when he comes, we're not going to be ready. You know, one of the things that the New Testament really calls us to is it calls us to godly living, to being ready at all times. Because we think, well, you know, I'll, I'll get my spiritual act together. I'll start reading my Bible tomorrow, or, and tomorrow never comes. The Bible only knows of one day to be ready, and that's now. If you're not ready now, you'll never be ready. So be ready. Then we have the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servant in 1241 here. It says, Who is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed that servant when his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, you'll set him, over, set him over all his possessions. But that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, begins to beat the male and female servants, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of the servant will come in a day when he does not expect him, as an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's the point here? Christ is giving these parables to talk about his coming. And he says, um, he says, you need to be ready. You can't say, well, the master delays his coming. He's taking a while, so I'm going to party. I'm going to beat the servants. I'm not going to. Now, who's this talking about? This is talking about the chief servant, the steward of the house. And Christ is saying, you better be ready, because what's going to happen? The master is going to come at a time when you're not expecting it. And if you're caught off guard, what will happen? You could be cut in pieces. But if you're faithful, what do you get? Reward. Blessed are you if you're ready when the master comes. And also what you find in here is a hint, and this is one of the passages used. Christ here is talking about his second coming. That's the point of this. And he's, there's a hint here of varying degrees of punishment. And what's the punishment based on? How much you know. How much you know. Now both get beaten, right? But one one gets beaten worse. One who knew. This is this is the way it this is the way it works out. It would be better for you to be born in the middle of the Amazon jungle and die without ever hearing about Jesus than to go to the average Christian church today. It'd be better to never know than to know and not do. Now, how God sorts all that out, I, I don't know how that's all sorted out. 
But if God's going to be perfectly fair, He's going to take into consideration, what did you know? If you knew and you flagrantly violated the law, it's going to be harder for you than if you didn't know. But what about the ones being misled? They still receive judgment, but who gets judged worse? The leader. The leader. I don't want to be Joel. Yeah. Yeah. I I have yeah, don't get me going on Olstein. Then we have the parable of the barren fig tree in thirteen sixty nine. Basic idea here is a man planted a fig tree, and if you plant a fig tree, what do you expect to get off the tree? Figs. Figs. So he came back at the proper time to get fruit, and what happened? What did he see? Barren. And after he did this a couple of times, what did he tell the gardener? Cut it down. And what did the gardener say? How did he respond? All right. One more year. Give it one more year. So what's the what is the uh, what's the big picture? Jesus is telling God, give him one more year. <laughs> Basically, that's about it. I mean, the the idea here is Christ came to Israel. And what did he expect to find? And what did he find? Nothing. And he came back the next year, and what did he find? Nothing. Nothing. And finally, this, well, let's cut the tree down. Well, let's give it one more year, and if it gives fruit, fine. If not, we'll cut it down. Now, what happened that next time? Got cut down, didn't it? The, the picture of this is that Christ is looking trying to find repentance in Israel. Now, at what point, where would he have gone to find true repentance in Israel? <coughs> I think where he went, he, he went about the people. It, but, was, it was the average person that he really impacted their lives the greatest. But if he wanted to see true if he wanted a barometer, he wanted to go take the temperature of Israel, where would he have gone? No. To the temple. And every time he went to the temple, what did he find? What did he find in the temple? Money changers. Yeah. In fact, there's two cleansings in the temple, possibly three. Every time he went to the temple to find... Repentance, what did he find? Robbers, a den of thieves. And he came there three times, and every time he went there, he found nothing but robbers and thieves. But you said, if Christ came, if Christ went to Jerusalem, where would he go to find true Christians? True repentance. True repentance. On a national level. So you said temple... Well, yeah. I don't think so. Why, why can, how, the temple was the center of Israelite worship. If they were ready for the Messiah, what would they be doing in the temple? They should have been, they should have been cleansing it. 
cleansing it, worshiping God, being repentant. And what did he find there? Making money. Right. He didn't find repentance. That's the point. The point is that he can't find it. Right. They were so far removed from what God wanted that you couldn't even recognize yeah. it as a temple. Or not. And understand this. And Luke brings this out in Luke, I, I forget, I think 18. Christ did not come to reform Judaism. Why? Because he didn't want them to think. They were going to reject him anyhow. He knew that. He came for all people. What had happened to Judaism? It was so apostate, it was unsalvageable. Well, he came to give his life for our sin. And he came at that appointed time knowing that they were going to be in such an apostate state that they would actually... Crucify. Yeah, th th this is interesting, and, and I never th thought of it in this term. But 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 as I as I study the Gospels, you, you see this going on. Why did Christ pick twelve disciples? Why twelve? More, more. If we're playing passwords, more. There are 12 tribes of Israel. What was one of the rewards of being an apostle? You'd sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before the disciples came along, who would be doing that? What's Christ replacing? He's replacing the whole rotten system. He says there's not going to be one stone left upon another that's not going to be ripped down. When he left the temple in his final entry, he was leaving an apostate system that it's so distorted God's message that it was unsalvageable. It was not the idea, if I can just tweak this and tweak that and push here and pull there, I could straighten this thing out. It was irreplaceable. And there was, there was, they didn't worship God at all. Okay. All right? Really, if you look at what he did, he changed everything because, you know, before the Shekinah glory mm -hmm. was in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. That's where God showed up. And now, God is in our hearts. Yeah, in fact, what, temple, yeah. And, and what he does, right before his crucifixion, he, in front of the people in the temple, what does he tell them about their spiritual leaders? He damns them. He pronounces the curse of God on them. He even told the woman at the well. He said, the time is, come, yeah. is coming, and now is, where you'll not worship in Jerusalem or in the mountain 
All right, let's let's look at this passage here. Luke chapter 20, verse 45. What, what's the context? Well, Christ is in the temple, and all of the muckety-mucks come up to try and discredit him. You have the group that comes up and says, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Another one comes up and says, well, what about the woman that had seven husbands? Whose wife is she in the resurrection? They're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus, of course, masterfully defends himself and paints them into a corner. And then in verse 45, by the way, what is Christ's conclusion after this confrontation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians? Did Israel accept or reject him? Reject him. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, Matthew spans this out a little bit. He calls them whitewashed tombs, making two, making you know, encompassing land and sea to make a proselyte and make him twice the child of hell that you are. And then what's it say in verse twenty, chapter twenty-one, verse one? Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with mar noble stones and offerings, he said, for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not one left here, one stone upon another will not be thrown down. All right, using your interpretive powers of context, context, and context. What's Christ saying about the widow's might? What is the context? What did he just say about widows? And here's a woman, he looks up, and here's a woman coming into the temple. And the Greek words here are very telling. She comes in destitute, she leaves absolutely destitute. There's two different words used. She leaves with nothing. She goes home to die. And what was Christ's assessment of that? She's putting the very little that she had left into something that was not going to meet her needs. And why was she doing that? Hoping to get her needs met. Because why? Pharisees. Because the Joel Osteens and the Rex Humbards of that day told her about seed faith. 
Christ is not honoring this woman for what she did. He's stating a fact. He looks up, and he just happens to see the people coming through. And he makes the statement, this poor widow put in everything she had. It's a statement of fact. He's not saying it's wonderful that she did that. He's not praising her for doing that. But what is he looking at? Why is she given that two copper coins? They have misled her to think that somehow if she gave that, God owed her something. And what system did that? System those guys were in charge of. And Christ said, damn it all. In fact, not one stone is going to be left on another that's not going to be cast down. I am not coming here to reform Judaism. We've got to wipe this thing off the map. We've got to get rid of this whole system and start over again. <clears throat> and who does he start over with? The disciples. They're the new spiritual leadership. There to replace the old. And why, and here's the question why did Christ have to replace Judaism? Is it because, let me ask the question is it because true Judaism was not right? I don't believe it was ever the ultimate goal for God. Because it didn't cure the problem. Was Christ saying true Judaism was bad? No, 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 it wasn't. No, not true. That's the point. True Judaism was not. Now, is it true that it was temporary? Well, of course it was. But it's not that it was bad. He's not. Christ is not against true Judaism. Never was. What is he against? The the, the Judaism that they had created. That was thing. not true Judaism at all. Well, it's the same thing with like, Catholicism. It's not true Christianity. It's and it's the same thing with the garbage you see on TBN, where you got guys standing up saying, Jesus wants everybody a millionaire, and you need to give me some seed faith money because I need a jet to fly over whatever. Yeah. And, you, and I, there's somebody in the crowd that's going to have $1,000 to give me for my jet plane. And that kind of stuff, they are no better than these Pharisees and Christ looked the Pharisees in the eye and said, I'm going to damn all of you. And he's looking at these guys here and he's going to say, you know, someday I'm going to damn all of you. Because it's not about that. What should this woman have done with her money? Feed herself. Does God need her money? Does God, is God saying, okay, you have a choice between tithing and starving. you got to tithe. You think God would want you to tithe if you were starving to death? No. That's not what it's about. Any more than David, who was not allowed to eat the showbread, what did he do when his men and him were hungry? What did they do? They ate it. They ate it. Why? Because the need of their life was greater than... the showbread. <clears throat> and really those guys that were rich, putting all that extra money in, should have done something to help the widow. They wouldn't. In fact, this widow probably lost her home because some scribe cheated her out of it.
And Christ said, I'm going to wipe this whole system. I'm, I'm just going to... Judaism, this Judaism is not Judaism. This is not true... This is not true religion. When I come to the temple, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, you guys are cheating people out of money by exchanging their money. You're selling them sacrifices at an exorbitant rate. And by the way, it's no different when the guys come in and, and talk about having a rally and you're allowed to come if you have $100 or $1,000 or something. You can have dinner with the big muckety-muck. It's no different. Christ does not Christ did not come to reform this Judaism. He came to erase it. And about 40 years after his death, it was erased. But what's the parable of the barren fig tree? I've come three years. Every year I come to the temple. Every year I try to come and see what the temperature is. And every year the body is sicker and sicker and sicker. And it comes to a head in his final appearance when he comes to the temple and the Pharisees and the religious leaders out and out reject him. And he says, I have... That's it. That's it. Luke chapter 14, we have the parable of the reserved seats. 7 through 11. Now he told a parable of those who were invited when he noticed how they were chose the places of honor saying to them. Okay? So, what, why is that? Well, in chapter 14, verse 1, he went into the house of a Pharisee to dine. And what did he notice in, in, as he went in? And all the other people started showing up. Yeah, they started taking the chief seats. At the head table. And he told him this parable. He said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding seat, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. If we're invited, go in and take the lower place, so he'll come up and give you the place of honor. What were the Pharisees in it for? Place of honor. To be seen, to be honored. By the way, that's an easy way to pick a false prophet. Does he get rattled when he doesn't get the best place in the first class seat in the biggest stake? Isn't John Piper's resignation or his discussion or his reason for why he was taking a leave of absence. No. He said he, he felt that in his ministry maybe there was some pride creeping in. Mm -hmm. Jetting around the world and mm -hmm. all these engagements and he wanted to be sure he wanted some introspective time to be sure that that wasn't so. And of course, that and his wife thought he wants to spend time I take my head off to that. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, see what happens when Victoria Osteen gets snubbed on a first-class flight. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> then he has the we have the parable of the Great Supper in Luke fourteen, twelve through twenty-four. When you have a supper, don't don't invite the people that can pay you back. Invite the people who can't. I mean, if you invite the people that pay you back, you're better. You know, better off than the publicans, right? Invite the people who can't pay you. Tax collector. Then this 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 is an important parable. Verse 15. One of those who reclined at a table with him heard these things and blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Is that a true statement? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who have been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So what do you have? You have a great man, he's wealthy. He makes this big meal, great banquet. You know, it's like um, two weeks from now, I'm going to have this great banquet. You know, be ready, and he lets people know, puts them on notice. And when the time comes, he sends a servant out, and what happens? Well, they begin to make excuses. The first said, "I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I'll sell him something. Bought a field, not saw it. Now, these excuses, what what are they?" They just don't want to go. That's the point. So they're coming up with stuff. Another one said, I brought five yoke of oxen. I must go to examine them. Another one said, I've married a wife and I can't come. So the servant came and reported those things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what have you commanded have been done? And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Okay. What's Christ telling them here? You're not going to take it, then I'll bring it to everyone else. What's he telling these people that he's at with the Pharisees? What is he telling them? You guys missed your opportunity. Now I'm going to give it to someone less desirable. Yep. You would not come, and now you cannot you can't come. You won't come, now you can't come. The message is very clear here. He's telling the telling the Jewish people, I I prepared a banquet. It's like the Messiah is here and, and you were invited and you didn't want it. You you want to go check your oxen out. You want to go check your field out. So what am I going to do? Well, I've got all of this food, it has to be eaten. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get anybody, the poor, the blind, the naked, the lame, not naked, but the lame, the maimed. If there's still room, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pick people off the street on the way by. Compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. People can eat. And basically what he's telling the Jewish people, he said, you know, you're invited to the feast, you wouldn't come. So I'm going to give to somebody who can come. And they're going to come from the east and the west and sit with Abraham in the kingdom and the children of the kingdom themselves will be cast out. You guys were invited to come, and you didn't want to come. 
And they talk about the cost of discipleship. What's that? Well, if you're going to follow me, what do you need to do? Yeah, if you're not willing to do that, don't follow me. I don't want you. Don't come. Now, compare that to the average evangelistic message today. Come to Jesus, he'll solve your problems, make you wealthy, drive a Cadillac. It's not what Jesus said. You don't come to Jesus on your terms, you come to Jesus on his terms. And what's his terms? You give up everything. If you're not willing to do that, don't follow me. He says it's like he says it's like a, someone who begins to build a tower, and if he doesn't count the cost and he's laid the foundation, what are people going to say? What an idiot! Can't finish it. Like that concrete castle we passed on twenty Yeah. And that doctor started it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of got interrupted with the jail term. Yeah. yeah. The doctor's clinic. Yeah. Yep. Here's it. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war does not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able of 10,000 to meet him who comes up within 20,000? If not, while the other's a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, Christ is coming with his army, right? Mm -hmm. So while he's afar off, what do you need to be doing? Trying to find terms of peace. Because now if he comes, yeah, it's not a good day for you. And if you're not willing to renounce all that you have, this is the point. We don't preach that. I'm sorry, but the average Christian church and the message of Christianity today is we don't preach that. We have a very anthropocentric salvation message, don't we? Explain that big word. What's in it for me? It's all about me. I come to Jesus because he does this for me and this for me and this for me and this for me. It has nothing to do with what I can do for him. It's what he can do for me. And Christ says, no, you don't come to me on that term. And then we have the great parables of 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. First one there, you have one sheep out of a hundred. What does the shepherd do? Goes out to find it. And then a woman's lost one silver coin out of ten. What does she do? She cleans the house out to find it. And then a man has one son out of two. And what does he do? He waits for the lost son to come home. And, and this is the thing. In each of the three cases, what is there? There's something lost. And when it's found, what happens? Celebration. Celebration. That boggles my mind. One of the things I've been pondering is The joy of God in, in, 
And it's like, um, you know, if you love someone, what do you want to do? In what way? I want to bring joy to their heart. What makes God happy? People come to Him. So if I'm in the business of helping people come to Christ, I'm going to bring joy to God's heart. Sometimes I got to ponder that and get over my fear of telling people and what makes God happy. What what brings God? What do you see here? The guy finds one sheep and what does he do? He calls all of his friends and they rejoice. The sheep was lost. I found it. The woman finds a coin and she has a party. She calls all of her friends. I found my lost coin. And the man whose son comes home, what does he do? Kill the fatted calf. Throw a party. We act like a dirge when people come to the Lord. Look, in heaven, heaven is rejoicing. Every time someone turns to God, heaven rejoices. Why does heaven rejoice? Because God is happy about that. What makes me amazed, what amazes me is that that day when I came to Christ, God threw a party for me. Because I was lost and now I'm found. You see the joy of God in the salvation of people. Then we have the parable of the other parables. We've got the parable of the dishonest manager. We got the, the rich man and Lazarus. That's now I I, I sort of think that's a parable as well. Some don't think it's a parable. But what is Christ trying to teach here in the rich man and Lazarus? The reality of heaven and hell. Yeah. Here's a man who had everything in life. Everything. He could eat anything he wanted. He could do anything he wanted. He could. Every day was a party. Every day was another banquet. And then here's another man who had nothing. Every day was misery. Every day was torment. Every day was tragedy. And what happened to both of them? They died. Now from the human perspective, the Pharisees would be saying, what about Lazarus? They, they said, well, it's about time he died. Obviously, he was a great sinner. Obviously, he was under the judgment of God. And what about the rich man? What was he? He's blessed. God was blessing him. He was a godly man. God was blessing him. But then, but then Christ takes the veil back, and what do you find? Christ is saying, you know, y'all got the wrong yardstick. 
see, the Jews thought that if you were wealthy, you were being blessed by God. And if you weren't, you were being cursed by God because of sin. So their conclusion is, well, Lazarus died and he's frying in hell. He should. He was evil. And Dives or this rich man, while well, he's enjoying the presence of God because he deserves it. Here's, this, this is the point. This, this is one we thing. We look at that today. We do. And, and this is the thing. If you have money or, or you're doing well, then you are blessed. But if you're just barely making it, we, why are you so poor? Yep. And you believe in God? Well, that's, that's what the boys on TBN tell you. Yes. That's what they tell you. This, this is a thing. You know, every once in a while, you get this aha moment. One of these aha moments to me was I was hearing this preached, you know, for the umpteenth time, and all of a sudden it hit me. Who gets into heaven? The believers. Those that have Christ have life. Those that have well, that, not Christ. Yeah, we know that, but go up a level. Who gets to heaven? The people who think they belong there or the people who know they don't belong there? The ones who don't know they, they don't know they belong there. The ones who know they don't belong there. Right. Who gets salvation? The ones who don't know the, the people who know that they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. So if you the Christian understands the word mercy and grace. So if you want to find a if you want to this this is look, this is, it's really easy to spot a false system of religion. You ask the person, if you get to heaven, why do you go there? If there's any no ancient notion of because they deserve it, it's a false system. Right. Out of hand. You ask Mormonism, why do you go to heaven? Well, because they deserve it. You ask the average Pharisee, why you have, well, we deserve it. God owes it to us. The moment you do that, that means you do not understand grace. You do not understand God's mercy. Yeah, preachers preach in the day that all the Jews are going to be saved. Mm -hmm. They're all going to heaven. The interesting thing here is that God saves people who know they don't deserve it. That's who he saves. And he doesn't save the people who think they do deserve it. So the more you think you deserve heaven, the less you understand the grace of God. And you have a classic example here where in the Jewish mind, this rich man deserved heaven. Why? Because he was blessed by God. And Lazarus deserved hell. Why? Because he was cursed by God. And what do you find after death? Lazarus is comforted and the rich man is tormented. And by the way, the rich man here is not saying this is unfair, is he? Because what does he ask Abraham to do? Go back and tell my brothers so they would do what? So they don't come to this terrible place. And how would they not come there? They would Change. repent. And what was Abraham's response? Well, they got Moses and the prophets. 
Yeah, the Word of God. It has to be a terrible thing to, to be in hell like that with no hope for yourself and to recognize fully that your family is coming right behind you. Mm-hmm. And you're powerless to do anything about it. And of yourself, because you're stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of movies that you see on TV that try to make, come up some picture of hell. And as I read this passage, there's not a single movie on television that comes close to what hell is all about. You still crave the things of life. You no longer can go. He had everything he wanted in life, now he has nothing. And by the way, we don't even know who his name was. Why? It's irrelevant. When you're in hell, there's no relationship. There's no, there's no need for a name. You're just... <clears throat> God can purposely forget. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. We forgot our sins. Lazarus had a name. Lazarus had a name. I think Lazarus means whom God helps, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. But here's a man who, I don't know, I read that passage, it's scary. scary. It's scary. It's scary. It's scary. And, and it's not to say that being rich, that uh, you're not, you can't be saved. No. This is just one of the examples of... The, the point here, the point to understand, and, and I'm really... If this is really sinking into my concrete skull a little more. Is there are so many people today that think that somehow God owes them, they deserve something because they do something, God is under obligation, and that is just so far astray from an understanding of your sinfulness and God's mercy, it betrays a total lack of understanding of that. Because none of us deserve heaven. I, I do not deserve to go to heaven. I know that. And God designed it that way. God, God wants us to understand we don't deserve it. Because then he can, he can deal with us. But so many people think that somehow God's under obligation. God doesn't owe us anything. I like the whole Catholicism system and it just breaks my heart. People to just think that they say the Hail Marys, they do this, they do that, they'll be okay. No. He's going to sort it all out. I can't, I can't imagine what was going through Pope John Paul II's mind five minutes after death. After death. Yeah, you know, have you ever noticed, and I've seen a couple of folks dead now. I've lived long enough. But man, they look terrible. I don't know what it is with them. You know, when they show them all laid out and all that 
that Richie stuff, all that you know, costume of mm -hmm. a pope and and everything. But I mean, you look at him, you think, my goodness, it looks terrible. Now that can be true, my dearie, because the last pope to die, they said if he hadn't, after all those days, and if he didn't hold up, then some of now, see, I don't know about all that Catholic stuff, but I watched it on TV where he had to hold up a certain way under all of that time. Uh, or he... Before John, John Paul died, I looked at that man and I thought, <laughs> my Lord, I'd hate to be in his shoes. Because he was so old and decrepit. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had to hold him up and he's carried he, everything he was doing on those rituals. You know, I mean, it's, he was all humped over and... Mm -hmm. He mumbled, I thought, my he didn't goodness. Know he was saying his, his he didn't know. I looked at that and I, I thought, Lord, man, don't ever... Well, you look at um, Gordon Hinckley, the head of the Mormon church that died at 97. Five minutes after death, he wished he would never been born. Yeah. The shock of waking up in hell and saying, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. But see, what is it? You And Christ says this throughout his ministry. You want to come to God, you come to God on his terms. That's right. You don't come to God on your terms. He's defined the terms. Yes. And if you come any other way, you are a thief and a robber. I think of Mother Teresa as well. She's going to be one of those saying, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing. I did the right thing. I, I held the baby. I, I did this. I did that. I did the when Christ went through Perea, you know, and, you know, we see his teachings here, it must have broken his heart to see these people. It just, they thought they were right. I mean, they're, they're working. They're striving to do the right thing, and it's all wrong. Because they're not coming the way of the cross. And, and I love that old hymn, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. You want to go home, you come by the way of the cross. You don't come any other way. And yet we're told every other way today. To Christ, it wasn't that way. That's why he called down the judgment of God on the Pharisees and on their system of belief that it so distorted the true message of Judaism, the true message of God, that they created a system that was not even Christian. And as you look at what we call Christianity today, there's a vast part of it that's not even Christian. It has more in common with cults than it has with Christianity. All right, we'll pick up here in two weeks. Our time's up already. Father, thank you for this day you've granted to us. and Father, we thank you that for whatever reason, known only to you, you chose us before time began. You opened our eyes to help us see the truth. Father, we realize we don't deserve any good thing from your hand. We don't deserve salvation. I certainly don't deserve heaven. You gave it to me anyways. And all I can do is say thank you. 
Thank you for saving me. Thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for helping me to see your son, to know him. I pray that I'd be concerned about the lost, Father, that I would be worried about them as well. Because we know from our passage here in Luke 15, you have great joy when people come to know you. You throw a party. Help us to be part of that. Help us to rejoice as well. Help us to ponder what we talked about tonight. Think about it. Brings back safely again in two weeks. Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.